Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Fifth Wave. Today we're sharing the second interview from our Fifth Wave Live sessions recorded at the European Coffee Symposium 2023 in Barcelona. In this episode, we catch up with industry legend Guido Bernardinelli, CEO of La Mazzocco. La Mazzocco is a powerhouse in the espresso machine category, known for their quality machines, cutting-edge technology, and iconic designs. In our conversation, Guido explains the role of a good leader is one that continuously learns from their team and their customers and cultivates a collaborative working environment. I was working for a smaller company responsible for the Caribbeans and North Africa for catering equipment in general because the distributors in those countries were and they still are generalistic. There was not the specialist in coffee and specialist in ice cream or ice machines. And so I was looking for expanding the range of product and I got in touch with uh, Chimbali. And in order to get the distribution for Chimbali into Africa, and they said, well, that was a long time ago. I'm talking about 32 years ago or something like that. No, maybe a little less, 28 years ago. And they told me, well, pick a country I picked Ethiopia, and the general manager said, well, why Ethiopia? I mean, you, there's Kenya, there's South Africa, there's Tanzania, there's places where there's tourists. Well, but I know that in Ethiopia, they, there is an Italian, there has been an Italian uh, presence, and it's a coffee-producing country of high quality, and the common beverage is espresso. So they gave me that deal, and we were lucky enough to produce 13 containers worth of sales of lever machine. Oh, yes. That are still there to these days. And then they told me, hey, why don't you come work for us? <laughs> <laughs> and so we started, and it was a great time because they gave me, uh, they assigned me the United States as a market in Canada and Central South America to begin with. And in those countries, uh, the market was moving from the Italian emigrants into the institutional American market, and Starbucks was burning, and the super automatic machine was starting, and there was a whole new thing that gave me the possibility to really try to build something from scratch and not being involved in a routine old market, and that gave me the opportunity also to be creative and try different things and without risking anything for the company, and that became a beautiful journey. We really did a good job. We set up 35 distribution ships, and then Faima came as an additional brand in the, in the family. And, and, then, and then by looking across the aisle at these uh, Seattle hippies selling La Marzocco, I yeah. thought they were the coolest company in the world. And I see these guys on a shirt, on T-shirt, having this great stainless steel machine shining, the coffee coming out, incredible. And a technician in Boston uh, uh, by the name of Eddie Book, I still remember him, told me that he was the best kept secret in the industry. Mm. And then uh, I just got an offer to go to work. Actually, they, they uh, offered it to Lorenzo, which is the, now the sales director of the company, at the time my junior sales area manager. And he said, well, I can't really take it because it's too much of an undertaking for me. But if you can also hire Guido, then maybe together we can give it a try. Mm. 
But it was just a thing, you know. And then they invited us to see the little factory in Florence, and we went on a Saturday because we didn't want to take a day off. We thought it was not worth. <laughs> so we forced the team to stay there on a Saturday to receive us, which is very kind of them. And on the way down in a, in a car, um, Lorenzo asked me, uh, how, how are we going to tell these people that in spite of the great day we're going to spend together, we're not even thinking of going to work there. We have children and loans, and the company was, at the time, composed by 12 people. As Adrian pointed it out, Lorenzo was uh, employee number 13 because he had a shorter, um, uh, what do you call it, lead time, um, what's the name for when you resign and you have... He had, he, had a, number. He, had a sh- he had a shorter notice period, thank you, Martha. Okay. And, and so he started a month earlier than me. Ah. And on the way back, so I was the number 14, and on the way back in the car, we said, after seeing the beautiful light in the building, the shining steel and steel, Piero Bambi talking about coffee, in a way that made us realizing that without coffee, there won't be any espresso machines. Yeah. And being in the espresso machine business, not knowing anything about coffee or thinking we knew it everything, but realizing that we didn't know so little, we felt very small. Mm. Although we had a mahogany desk, business class flights, and <laughs> an Audi as a company car. I feel, wow, this is too good to be true. We can't leave that going. This is not about the money, it's the experience, is getting involved into something that, can, that contains the germ of a revolution. So long story short, on the way back uh, to Milano, we said, uh, how are we going to tell Chimba that we're both living at the same time? (laughs) (laughs) And that's our story, basically. And then from that point on, we had a clean sheet of paper, and we could try everything we couldn't try in a pre-organized, perhaps not so hungry company. Um, At at those times, Starbucks was leaving La Marzocco for a new technology. Thanks to the great job that Adrian and his team have been doing for them. And so we had to reinvent the wheel in a sense to create a regular distribution ships of product and travel the world to find a customer that would import, distribute, learn about Lamar. Then we had only one model. Yeah. And not working really perfectly either. So, <laughs> so that was the story. Wow. And, and back to that digital initial deal, that sort of. Ethiopian deal. I mean, there must have been something in your blood about coffee. There must have been, you saw the young, you know, guy that's, you know, home of coffee, Italian presence. Like, maybe you want to tell us about your first ever coffee experience or or coffee in your home growing up, the young Guido. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for this question because it it brings me back to the love of my unfortunately passed away mom. Uh, she was a coffee addicted incredible. So at the time, the mocha pot was on the stove all the time, and the Stelladoro cookies, and every, every time somebody comes home, before they ring the bell, she put the, stove, she put the mocha pots on. And then we would walk together uh, uh, every so often to the nearby cafe to have an espresso, almost daily, actually, after school. Yeah. And so I got used to that flavor and, and the aroma and smell of coffee so early for a child. I see my children, right? my son is 22 years old, he barely drinks coffee. Yeah, okay. My daughter does very much and she likes it, but she started really late too. Yeah. I was drinking coffee regularly at 12 years old or even earlier. 
And that has brought me, has kept the idea of coffee with me and, and, and associated that idea with the image of my mom. Mm. And some of our friends, family friends were roasters. And so we got the fresh roasted coffee from them and I could go to the roastery and hang out there. And I don't know, it kind of, uh, you know, yeah. sedimented. It became, and then when I, when I had the opportunity to add another product to the line of the catering equipment for Africa, the first product that I went to look for was espresso machine. Oh, wow. Well, my, my first coffee was around about 11 or 12, uh, less romantic than yours. Um, it was instant coffee watching... <laughs> watching the rugby or something in, in Australia. <laughs> but, uh, but my mother was addicted to whiskey, so very lucky. <laughs> very lucky that... <laughs> then, I, then I could say I was very lucky that my mom was addicted only to coffee, actually. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so absolutely fabulous. That, that, that heart and soul of coffee that you've brought to our industry and um, have been responsible for, you know, helping to build and then ultimately now leading an incredible business. Um, one of, you know, the leading icons of coffee equipment. Um, you know, what's, what is the secret, do you think, to La Matsoko's success? It's the most asked question yeah. that I get growing up. And people don't believe the answer when I say it, so I have to ask you for an act of trust yeah. and try to believe my answer. I believe that everything rises and falls on leadership. Okay. I believe you can have a natural leadership as an individual, businessman, human being, but I also believe that leadership is learnable. Okay. And how do you learn and how do you implement your leadership? It's how it discriminates your success in two ways. One, we. I quickly realized, analyzing every night where I go to bed, I kind of have a, an analysis of the day, how it went. You know, unthoughtful, unthought out life, it's not worth living in my opinion. Yeah. So in reviewing that, I realized quickly that the biggest influence, because leadership in the end is influence, in my opinion, I received it from down up. Not from, from up down. I, I received both, but much more from the junior employees, from the customers, of course, people that were on the ground dealing with the problems and the issues, making coffee, talking to the consumer, which paradoxically, they knew everything that we didn't know, and yet we have to produce and develop machinery that are designed for somebody that we don't know how to use it. Yeah. So leading, leadership from our team that taught us how to listen to the customer and put us in the streets of the world to visit customers. There's not one day in my life when I travel that I don't spend some time visiting and user customers. That's why I didn't participate to the one-to-one -one yesterday, and some other people from our company did. I spent a whole day, I, I walked 18 kilometers, I measured, yep. just to see customers and users, coffee shops. Yep. Many of them were bakeries, actually, Martha. So, um, so a lot of leadership developed within Down Up, yep. leadership and wiseness from 
upstairs in the company and uh, delegation of responsibility. You need to multiply the value. You can't tell people how to do it. It's risky, I know. Yeah. But in our example, yeah, we had a couple of downsides, but for the most part, the vast majority of the situations, we have been able to reach in the life of others. Yeah. I was mobbed at work, and when I had the opportunity to start something that I could at least, I wouldn't say control because it, I don't like the word, but at least be in the engine room of the development of a new opportunity, I thought, how about if everybody else felt uncomfortable to go to work? How about if anybody else has a lump in their stomach uh, when they switch on the car to, take, to, to drive to the office? Well, to my surprise, most of the people there that I was working with, inside and outside, they had the same feeling. Mm. I mean, now we're talking about integration, we're talking about uh, op same opportunities, we're, we're inclusion. In my early days, they don't give a shit, people. Sorry for my French. Mm. Companies were not trained, at least in my country, to pay attention to the people, to take care of the people. So by not taking care of the people, they started to consider people a cost. Mm. In the way that our balance sheet uh, income statement uh, is designed by people that came way before us, and luckily they did, so we can manage the companies. There's one flaw. They put the cost of employees in the, in, in the income statement, not in the balance sheet. Meaning that it's a cost equal to the toilet paper you buy for your office. And balance sheet is about investment. But people lease the most important investments because the, the products are made and designed and produced by people, are sold by people, are serviced by people, are used by people. Mm -hmm. They produce a product that people drink. And so once you change that paradigm, and we did it as an exercise internally to move the employee cost into the income, into the balance sheet, and check it every month. Well, we had two, two files, one for the high-end management team that we didn't show, which by law had the, all the employees in the cost list. Yeah. We started to change. Oh, we spent so much money with this guy. And, you know, or when they made a mistake, they came to us and they said, oh, I made such a big mistake. One guy said, I wanna, I wanna resign. I am so ashamed for the mistake I made. I, I made you lost 40,000 euros in this deal. I said, well, we just spent 40,000 euros to teach you a lesson how to learn, you know, <laughs> and nobody would have been able to tell you, you know, no matter what university you would pay. Yeah. And so that attitude has created stories, has created a relaxation, has empowered people to go ahead and change the world in every area from the product development to, to uh, raising departments uh, to flourish, to establishing a network of both branch offices and distributors and importers to our wonderful customers and chain accounts, roasters, micro roasters, you name it. Now many restaurants actually. And home, so home baristas. And so it was, and with the same leadership, we even developed the home barista segment, which was not at all intended to be an electrical appliance that facilitates uh, the production of a cup of coffee on your way out the door in the morning. But on the contrary, it's like 
we put the fireplace in the kitchen that everybody re uh, reveres around it. They get their hands dirty. They make a mess in the kitchen, but they go get the coffee that they couldn't otherwise find in normal uh, grocery stores, and they could learn about different uh, stories and sustainability and taste profiles, exchange recipes online, and all that, in my opinion, is leadership. So your kind of bottom-up version of leadership, that's very much what Lane was talking about, the sort of the, you know, learning to, learning to listen. Is that something you had to learn, that listening, or is that sort of built in, or is there someone that you taught you along the way the importance of listening? When you work for a company that don't listen, then what you do, and you have a chance to change. I think that if we send a salesperson, for example, I don't know, to Taiwan, and he comes back, and maybe he's got a, a brief, briefcase full of orders, it's great. But besides what he's got in the briefcase, there's a lot of the stuff that he's seen. There's a lot of ideas that he has heard. He has exchanged opinion with local entrepreneurs. He has learned different way of consumption of coffee. Milk is dealt upon differently, perhaps. Yep. They use the right group more than the left group. They want a connection to the uh, internet of the machine. And, and now that's gold. I call it currency. Right. So listening, can, it's the only way. Uh, I could tell you we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, but yeah. it's really true. Because all that information that we have received from our... From, many, many different um, areas have been the reason for producing changes. Yeah, and how do you capture that? And it that? sounds obvious. I mean, you have a company, you have people that you pay, you want to hear from them. Yeah. No, it's not common. I don't know why. Right, well... Um, Maybe because, again, it's a cost. So this, I'm um, interested in also kind of getting into this the sort of the DNA of what I see from an outsider, this outside-in model, this, you're out of the box. I remember being invited to be present at your out of the box in Milan many years ago, and I thought that was really cool because there was this host going on and you guys <laughs> created the most fun party, but it was a learning opportunity and, I, I, and it was like just, I was just blown away by the interesting talks and all the sharing of information of this out of the box, you know. <laughs> Um, it's a common theme, this out of the box. You know, is, is this the secret? I mean, how do you, how do you stay out of the box? <laughs> All right. Uh, to be clear, we real quickly realized after starting to work for Lamarazoko that we didn't have the customer base that was even interested in our product the way we intended. And having supported the SEA from inception in the United States, when, uh, when it started, on a, I remember, on a hotel lobby on a, on a table that they rented out there, and I've seen the hard work has been put through and forth by the Specialty Coffee Association to really promote a new wave of drinking coffee, especially at the time where in the United States, espresso was not there, but not really there yet so that they could inform the consumer from scratch. And by seeing that and being part of that so intensely, we realized that there was not a big market for us in the generalistic 
public in the journalistic market for espresso machines. So we thought, well, it is small enough that we can talk to each and every one. It is small enough that if we go visit a city, we can go talk to each and every of our customers in that city and learn from them and be present. And so maybe there's one little advantage to having a very small company is the one to be able to embrace the community under one roof. And so we thought that if we were going into this big, gigantic trade show, our brand would be diluted, people won't pay attention, would cost a fortune, uh, and we cost the money we didn't have, by the way. <laughs> and, and so by doing this, we could say, okay, well, whoever is in our ecosystem is invited to come to something that is outside that even for them would have been more receivable. And the industry and the customers were eager, anal about information. Yeah. It was such a departure from previous ways of sales. For example, uh, now we said, if you really want to know a lot about our machine, you'd better go ask one of our baristas, yeah. customer, than us because they know so much about it, it's incredible. And in the past, we would say, okay, well, we have a, a boiler that is 20 liters, we have consistency in temperature because we measure it with a PID system, we can make 140 cups an hour, and so forth and so on. This is so many amps, footprint. Nobody asks those questions anymore because the community was so into it, the community, into the brand, into the specialty coffee into a willingness to change the world of coffee. And he was really uh, knowledgeable, driven. We're so very knowledgeable. In fact, our Strada machine, which is the barista machine, was developed with, with them. We created a community, uh, not a community, a task force. And you know why it's called Strada, just for out of curiosity, to reiterate our mentality for community. It's because in, in America they say, what's the world in the streets? What's going on? What's the world in the street? Yeah. So the street team should go out there and listen to the customer, come back, and give us the word from the street. Right. That gave the name for the street team. And then we wanted to make it Italian because we're an Italian company from Florence. And so we translated the name into Strada, which means street in Italian. Ah, got it. Very good. I, I mean, but you're, you're a fairly scaled company now. I, I remember... We met way back, um, I think, wandering around Vienna, I think it was, at one of the very first European, the second European coffee symposium. But it was, you're a very tiny company those days. Now you're, you know, I don't know, 30 times bigger or something crazy. Uh, how are you able to still keep that sort of freshness, that out-of-the-box feeling at a, at a business that is just so... So scaled now. Well, I, rep I reply on, on two ways. On, on one way, uh, we haven't realized it ourselves because we worked out of the same small offices. We have created a lot of small offices. So you, you, you don't have everybody under the same roof. So you don't walk into the, into, uh, in the morning into a building that has 800 plus people. Right. So we don't have any office that is, has more than 100 people. And here in Spain, I think we have not even 10. Yeah. And so that keeps the feeling. You can still do the Christmas party and the summer barbecue and, and work together in, in, in classes, in development yeah. classes and so forth and so on. Mm. We have created Academia, uh, the Cafe Espresso, which is a center of cultural understanding 
of Italian espresso that contains all the experience that we have developed in this coffee mm. machine that thinks about coffee kind of orientation and contains a lot of, uh, you know, there's a greenhouse, there's a research study that's connected with uh, um, Professor Mancuso, which, which discovered that, that plants actually talk to each other, creating a network that is the biggest in the world. And we have sensors for the plants and developing system to help the farmers to control uh, pests and diseases that are characterizing coffee production and farming as a result of the climate change. We have a ceramic. I can tell you another little story if you like. Yeah. Inside academia, we tell the story of, of coffee, which is in Italian language, cafe is a male name. Unlike in English, we have male and females for all names, making it very difficult for Anglos to learn our language. And the espresso machine, macchina, is female. So we have the story, the coffee comes from origin. The espresso machine in our case come from Lamarzocco, the factory. They go on the counter, which is the altar, and they get married. Ah. And, that, uh, and then through that marriage, you have a little espresso coffee that comes out of the machine in a small cup that is made by our ceramic lady. And she's great in doing that. And it's delivered in the, in the crate. Uh, that is what happens at academia. So we have preserved the culture into one place, putting all our power into one spot so that we could tell a story. Yeah. On the other hand, we have developed products that are restyled and developed and improved. Uh, it's trying to stay on the evergreen side of product. In other words, like you have Vespa or you have uh, Cinquecento of the Fiat 500 or you have uh, Porsche 911, those are products that don't change in brand, they don't, are not substituted by a new model, but they are the evolution of the same model. Okay. So we're trying to design something that reveres the value back to customers that already bought our machines and can, re, and can connect mm -hmm. with that. We have developed the home market, I just talked about it, and now the grinding. Yeah. So we are entering the grinding system, and on, on finally, we are investing heavily into connectivity. Okay. So these two areas, they, they continue the legacy as before in product development that are the same, just better, and in culture, academia. Are we ever going to see the fully automatic Lama Tsaka? No, well, we would buy from Adrian before we do it on ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Um, back to this theme of listening, um, any other learnings that you might have taken from, from your, your period of your, your long and successful career in coffee? Anything that you'd share with? Well, I mean, what I can tell you, people? Jeffrey, uh, the biggest learning is that uh, we have done more mistakes than any other company out there. Uh, we, are, we have probably been faster in failing, so we were failing forward. And so we had first to unlearn and relearn a lot of things. As we did that, we created, because we had a lot of holdbacks from past um, habits of conducting the business practice that were really wrong, uh, and 
And that phantom came back to us mm. all the time. Mm. And, but we learn how to react faster. Mm. So I used to tell my kids all the time, well, not anymore, but when they were younger, I said, e Bernardinelli, it's either up or getting up. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Now, I, I uh, must say, and, and a big thank you um, for the invitation we had at the Ac Academia. Um, it was last, was it, it was this, it was this, uh, this year. Just a, There's so many year. things going on. So many things going on, but it was evident that sustainability is um, really important as a topic to yourself. I wonder if you want to unpack what you'll be doing as an organisation on sort of leading uh, within sustainability? So it is extremely important to me as a person because I am, I grew up in a, on a lake in a mountain and I have been always attentive to the environment. When I go hiking and I see uh, rubbish on, the, on my trail, I am mad and I pick them up and all that. And so that has been what I learned growing in into an, in an outdoor environment. Uh, so when the attention on the world became more evident on this kind of sustainability in general, not just sustainability in terms of being green, but the green part definitely struck with me and I became adamant about yeah. that. So there's no plastic in academia. I mean, there's small things, but there's every, all the energy that we produce is solar and we have 42 of our company cars are electric and the rest of it is hybrid. Right. And we are forbidden to ban to buy any diesel engine. We measure the footprint of the people coming to work. And there's a lot going on. I don't want to create yeah. a boring session here at the end of my interview. But what I would tell you uh, is that in my opinion, the meaning of sustainability is to last in time. Why do we want to do this? I mean, if you think about it, okay, we need to pollute less or nothing if possible. Uh, we need to create a longer lifestyle, li uh, lifespan of the product. We need to consume less energy. We need to employ all sorts of people and give equal opportunities to everybody. We need to uh, support the farmers because if we don't, us entrepreneurs, nobody will. Yeah. And the system is designed from the colonies to extract all the profit and give back nothing. The farmers don't know how much they should ask for their coffee, what kind of quality they are producing. They go to the fancy coffee shops. And you know, in our plantation in Africa, um, in Tanzania, up until lately, up until we took it over, not because it's us, but it, because we did uh, finish three wells, well, there were five, but two didn't find the water from the UNICEF that didn't, that they, they just dropped it. And these people, they are not even running water. Mm. The climate change and all the problem with the, with the diseases, they forced them to, to farm avocado or other crops that are more they're easier to produce, to, to develop, and they pay better, and there is a fixed price. So, we want to give an example for other company in the world to get inspired because we can save the world and say, okay, what do we have to do to last? And if we don't help the coffee, there won't be any espresso machines. Yeah. 
So it is to have to create this program at origin. It is to create the program at Academia to tell the story. It is to uh, be as efficient as we possibly can. And when it comes to the product, when we did the analysis, they told us, ah, okay, your product lasts a very long time. You can reuse all the material because it's not, almost no plastic. Mm. Most of it is stainless steel. Mm. Uh, so you're, you're not doing too bad yeah. as, a se as a sector. But then I thought, okay, but do we need a 124 kilos piece of equipment to make 50 cc of espresso? Mm. So maybe the future and the industry and all of us together should think at ways to hit the water at the lighter weight. All yes. this combined forms our four-piece strategy, which is product, <clears throat> people, planet, and profit. Because yeah. the other thing is, is everything non-profit and then you have no money to develop solutions. So if we don't make profit, we can't give back what we don't have. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. And if you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Links are in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated.